difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson cannot be with us this week, having abandoned the Tribeca Film Festival to pursue her love of the rodeo. <laughs> uh, on the first half of this episode, we discussed Abbas Kiristami's 1990 film Close Up, which blends fact and fiction and recreation to depict an odd incident in Tehran. In this episode, we turn our eyes back to America, albeit a slice of America that most of us will rarely get to see the sprawling, unspoiled modern day West of South Dakota and the horse culture that still thrives there. It's home to Brady Blackburn, a young radio writer and horse trainer who we first see tending to a vicious head wound. Blackburn's played by Brady Jandro, a real-life radio writer, director Chloe Zhao, met while filming her directorial debut, Songs My Brothers Taught Me. He also shares more than a first name with the film's protagonists. Brady Blackburn shares a trailer with his father, Tim, and his developmentally disabled sister, Lily, played respectively by Jandro's real-life father and sister, Wayne and Lily Jandro. The similarities don't end there. Zhao told Vanity Fair she already had vague plans to make a movie with Jandro when he received a head injury while competing in the radio. When she saw a photo of Jandro back on the job mere weeks later, she knew what film she wanted to make. But the writer isn't a simple, inspirational film about holding on to your dreams. The question of whether Brady can continue to pursue riding and training horses, the only things that seem to have given him any kind of fulfillment, hangs over the film from beginning to end. Nor is the film about how dreams can destroy you, though that's never far from the story either. Throughout the film, Brady visits his friend Lane Scott, a radio star whose own accident has made it unlikely he'll ever live on his own again. Instead, the writer lives in the space between those two possibilities, acknowledging that Brady might end his life by pursuing what he loves, while acknowledging that life away from horses might not count as life for him at all. No more riding, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are going to get worse. I'd sell Gus, Brady. I can't sell Gus. It's not like you can ride anymore. You seen Lane? Remember when he went three for three in McCool Junction and won it? Yeah, that was a good night for Lane. There you go. Sometimes dreams aren't meant to be. Who's this? That's Apollo. Wow, that's amazing. A horse that never had nobody on his back before. Where are you going with that? I'm going to the rodeo. You don't need to go ride today. I'm entered and I'm riding. Go kill yourself then. It's too bad your mom ain't here. You and her could be stubborn together. I believe God gives each of us a purpose. For the horse is trying across the prairie. For cowboys to ride. All right, everyone, the rider. What what did everybody think? Well, I've seen the film twice now. It's probably my favorite film of the year. It's certainly close. It's uh, high up there, so I I have just enormous admiration for it. I think it's a beautiful film about a slice of America that we don't see very often. I think its mixture of fictional and documentary elements is elegant and uniquely powerful. Um, I think photography is extraordinarily beautiful at times and it just it has some some sequences in it that are you know real real poetry you know when he whenever brady is working with 
horses, trying to you know, breaking horses and, and training horses. It's just mm-hmm. there's some just majesty there that you could never get with a you know. You know, even Daniel Day Lewis could train for <laughs> for years to do this, but he would never have be able to do it quite like somebody who actually could do this. So, um, I'm a huge fan of this film and was very strongly pushing it on the other the two of you. So, I'm very curious to think what to hear what you thought of the film. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you did push it on us, and, and like I'll be honest, the day we saw this, uh, we saw this at a early screening here in Chicago. The, the three of us probably now like a week and a half ago, and like it was a really hard day for me i had a lot going on and i was distracted while watching this film and i was like really worried that i would that that would color my reaction to it you know when i came out of the film like i had enjoyed it i was like still kind of distracted so i didn't think too much about it but in the week week and a half since then i've thought about this film so much and like images and sequences just keep popping into my mind foremost among them that sequence of him taming the horse and getting on his back for Mm -hmm. the first time and many many others the rodeo boys jumping the fire the various hospital scenes just the (laughs) taking the staples out of his head which (laughs) like the film opened with that i just like kind of looked at scott like what did you get me into scott i was not, not happy with that opening but it was so of a piece with this movie that has has really lingered in a way that makes me very excited to revisit it. It just opened here in Chicago today, so I haven't had a chance to do that. Yeah, I would certainly encourage seeing it again. I had a more, I had a pretty emotional reaction to it both times, but certainly the second time was all the more moving. What do you think, Keith? Oh, I'm glad you pushed. I was going to see this anyway, but I'm glad you pushed us to talk about it. I think it's a really good pairing with Close Up, which is a film I love. You know, I, I we try to. I don't think we try to avoid spoilers too much. There's not really a lot to spoil in this film, yeah. but but that one writing sequence, my God, <laughs> you know, it's just like this. Is like, uh, uh, how how did this happen? Like, how did she capture this moment so perfectly? Just doesn't level of just filmmaking. It's just so in sync with the horse and then the, the, the light. It's just beautiful. But also, how did she find this guy? It's just perfect for this movie. And like, I think that opening shot kind of sets you up for it because it is really beautifully uh, the lighting of it is beautiful and, it, and it's artistic and what you're seeing is really ugly and kind of unfakeable i don't know if that was actually head injury or not i know the answer to this you do <laughs> it is it is a fake head injury but it is directly over his actual right. scar so, okay. so yeah. yeah and the way you tend it to it was obviously mm-hmm. this is something this is not again it's not someone faking it not taking anything away from the craft of acting but uh, i think that extra layer really works really well for this movie yeah, I mean, here's somebody who is used to dealing with a lot of pain just by nature of, of what he does. What struck to me, too, is just this life on the precipice, too, because this is someone who identifies himself as a cowboy who has dreams of being in the rodeo. But how far could those dreams possibly extend in the best of all circumstances? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If he is this champion, how long is that last and what does that pay? And then, of course, then then he's faced with a question sooner than he would perhaps plan to be faced with it, but he would inevitably be faced with the question of what next? When this rush that he gets from being in the rodeo and hearing the crowd and competing, when all that fades away, like, who is he? And that's kind of the starting point for the film is, is him filling in that blank and really struggling so hard to do it. But also, in a way... He, there's such a generosity of character with him too. This is such a personal predicament that he's in to have his dreams kind of shattered very quickly. And it's something that he's has to wrestle with through the whole film, but he never does it at the expense of anyone else. He's always so mindful of his sister and of Lane Scott and even of his father with whom he has conflicts. I mean, this is just a very big hearted guy mm-hmm. um, and, and you really feel for him 
throughout the film and, and uh, I, I love it and, and again this is a part of America the, the western and the American west I mean is such a big part of American cinema but it, you talk about America of the 21st century in this particular part of the country you just you don't see it you just don't, you never see it in, in much country. less the reservation which, right. is, which is not dwelled on that much but it's definitely you know they, they are on reservation land and there's reservation services and uh, it seems like his identity is more tied up with the cowboy life than being a Native American but that's definitely another factor into it too yeah I'm with you Genevieve there's just scenes that stuck with me like there's we know his mother has died and the scene where he goes to employment services and the woman just says, I knew your mom. She was awesome. You know, it's such heartbreaking. And like another scene that's really stuck with me that kind of speaks to what we were just talking about, about like what his future was like when he's working in the grocery store and the kids come mm-hmm. up to him and to them, he's the biggest celebrity in the world. And you're right. There's a time. I mean, even if he hadn't had this accident, is this a scene that would just take place? four years down the line yeah. or, or sooner, you know? There's a ceiling to how far you can take this. It's also like a surprisingly funny movie in a lot of places. And I say surprisingly, not because I wouldn't expect this movie to be funny, but because the moments of humor take you by surprise because they are so drawn from life. I'm thinking of when his sister covers him with gold stars yes. and then he has to answer the door. Or again, with his sister, maybe it's just his sister his is really sister funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. Not a, a, like not, cutting not, up her bras yeah. and saying she doesn't want to do 15, she wants to do 14. You yeah. Think? Uh, yeah, his sister was great, as was his dad, who is a much pricklier character, but like their dynamic was fascinating and like, it's complex. Yeah, yeah. And like was really kind of indicative of the aspect of this movie that I found so compelling, particularly coming from a female filmmaker. It's just like the dismantling of toxic masculinity and like the expectations that men place on each other of, of masculinity. And one thing about his relationship with his father that I found really interesting is his, his father's continued insistence that he was stubborn. You couldn't tell him to do anything. He's stubborn and he's like calling him stubborn out of one side of his mouth and the other side of his mouth kind of like low-key shaming him for not being able to ride anymore, you know? It just like creates this context of you have to be a man and bear up and do the thing that you're not supposed to do because you're stubborn and that's what a man does, you know? And without actually ever saying it that way. Mm I found that relationship but fascinating. A, but there is ultimately, uh, on the father's part, a push for him to stop. Yeah, I mean, I mean his father's conflicted as well. Yeah. But, you know, like, that's what's so fascinating about it is his father doesn't understand what he wants for his son either, I don't think. Yeah, and the way that the whole thing ends, too, and I mean, I guess maybe I won't spoil it on here, but when his father and, and, and Lily turn up to watch him and the decision that he ends up making mm-hmm. at the end, and the way she shoots it, it could have been such a sentimental moment but she shoots it from a distance it's just so beautiful it's such a lovely framing because it gets all the emotion across without overemphasizing any of it uh, it's a really skillful piece of filmmaking throughout i mean i was i'm really impressed i mean i'm impressed by just the use of non-professional actors yeah. i mean these performances are all fantastic and i think there's a nice technique there between the material that has been contrived and material that has been gleaned a little bit by you know this natural relationship that all of yeah. them have together yeah we, we should talk about the extent to which this movie is real because when we watched this together at the very end we stayed through the credits and the very end it had the you know all persons places you know depicted in this <laughs> are, are works of fiction any resemblance to people living or dead is purely coincidental And in the context of this movie, you know, we all just had to laugh a little bit. But, like, it is a fictionalized Mm -hmm. story. It's based on real events. Like, Brady Jandro did have this fall and this head injury, and he 
did have to stop rodeo and he did find this new path to training horses that allowed him to continue to live his life. But I saw this interview with Brady Jandro when he was talking about working with Chloe Zhao and like during a scene saying like, well, that's not what I did or that's not what I would do. And she was like, it doesn't matter. That's what the character would do, you know, and like in the context of the film, this is a distinct character that is inspired by the person who's playing the character, which Mm -hmm. is where the lines get really blurry, but it is its own story. Well, I think one note that stood out for me in terms of reality versus fiction is the character of Lane Scott. Uh, mm-hmm. Lane Scott in the film is this uh, this sort of hotshot rodeo star whom we meet in the hospital who has been, uh, well, how would you describe his condition? Uh, I mean, he's incapacitated. He's paralyzed, he's, I, I is believe. Par- is it paralyzed almost? It's not even, the, it's not the neck down. No, because he can move his arms. He, he has like severe brain damage. He can't speak. He can no longer speak. He has to sign. He does. Okay. And he has tremors. Yeah. So um, in any case, that injury, you know, Lane Scott, again, a real rodeo star, that injury was sustained through a car accident, correct? And not not an accident. But it's uh, never actually in the film. Do they say it was a radio accident or just kind of? It's heavily implied. Yeah, it's a radio. I I was kind of looking for it the second time about how cagey they are about that. But I really I think that the film really strongly implies that it was an accident sustained in rodeo and not something that happened some other way. Yeah, and, and like that implication comes, I think, just through the relationship of those two characters as we see it play out in the movie. Like, Lane represents what could have been for Brady, and it's sort of a reminder of what it takes to keep living after this, you know? But I didn't know that that was it. It, it, to, it, it worked. Your your point is proven yeah. because I totally didn't know that uh, that that what was what happened to Lane Scott was a car accident. And, and I like that Chloe Zhao gives herself the freedom to make those dramatic choices that would be beneficial to the film that don't necessarily um, reflect anything that might have happened in reality. I mean, I think I saw the film at true false and Brady Chandra was there to close out was not because it was the same day that the independent spirit awards were happening and, and the writer got quite a few nominations mm-hmm. for that so she was off doing that but Brady Chandra was in um, Missouri for the festival and he was talking about was he great he seems great he was great <laughs> he, he, I mean, he, was, he was very shy I think mm-hmm. uh, I, and I saw him with his kid um getting ice cream when i when i was getting ice cream at the same time so you have you run in with like real life figures that you've seen in movies it's very interesting blurring the line between fiction and reality all over it is really out in the real world in addition to being in the theater but he was he was emphasizing too that his relationship with his father does not necessarily have this kind of tension that that was something that was sort Mm -hmm. of introduced and played up in the film so um you know again that's a license that closure allows herself and and it it helps the film greatly and you can you can do that when you have no pretense to doing a documentary right no, yeah. no, but but I mean, what's, but, what's but, great about this this sort of hybrid form we're talking about? Yeah, she can, by the same token, she can take what she wants from uh, what is real about these characters and authentic that an actor that she might have recruited from Los Angeles couldn't do. Yeah. Have either of you seen her first film? No, and it's streaming on Netflix, and I really wanted to watch it yeah. before this so that I could talk about it, but I didn't. Yeah, we're all shaking our head. Well, yeah. well, it's we quite good. People really yeah. like. Really, yeah, maybe, like maybe it too. I don't know if they. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, she's very talented, and what she's going to do potentially Black Widow. Well, that's a that's a rumor that was floating around today. <laughs> just, which, if they, you know, a, a Black Widow film in, in the sort of lyrical style of this <laughs> could be really quite great. No, um, you don't ever want filmmakers you like to get absorbed by the Marvel machine. Some are okay. So, yeah. 
Yeah. I think it's a perfect place for James. I don't want this. You know, I, think, I, I, I don't think, want her specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to see more films like this in places like this about people like this because that's not something we're going to yeah, get and, from anybody and, else. Like, her two films have been about places like this and people, specifically this place and these people. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, like yeah. she has committed to this part of the country. So it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here. Yeah. Cause, I mean, she's, she's got skills for sure. And I mean, I, and I think the way she manages non-professional actors and, and dialogue and improvisation um, the performances here are like two a one incredible. I know, I know, we've already said it, yeah. but, but like it bears repeating that not just for non professional actors. Like these are good performances. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah, they really are. And there's a lot of, especially on Brady's part, mm-hmm. a lot of just acting that is required here. Yeah. A lot of emoting that is required, and a full range of emotions that he has to express in this film and he really nails it all the way through i mean there's really there are very few moments where you're distracted i mean i was thinking a lot of about the difference between this and the 1517 to paris the clint eastwood (laughs) film which uses uh, which uses the real dudes who were involved in that incident as actors in his movie and those guys those guys are not actors Uh, which kind of gives the film a certain charm yeah yeah uh, but that's a good point of comparison because that doesn't work as well as it does it doesn't i i I think the missteps begin with giving the one guy a a voiceover to start the film well that we can talk all about Uh, that's a whole other podcast but but (laughs) But again i kind of like that movie and it's weird yeah yeah yeah, because it does have the uh the it is a documentary fiction you get a quality from it you're not going to get from any no or certainly from a hollywood film my goodness um but in any case you know i if you're talking about casting a movie down the line you could i don't think we're going to necessarily see the dudes from 1570 to paris in the movie but brady jandrow could be an actor and maybe turn into convincing performance Maybe. Maybe. Or he could turn into uh, the, the kid from Boyhood who's been gonna really, say, really did, bad did, in everything he's been in. Well, he's in The Circle, the circle and is, what uh, else? I saw him in that Burt Reynolds movie, oh, uh, The Last Movie right, Star. He's, yeah. he's, he's, he's okay in that, but boy, he's, boy The Circle is well, bad. Well, The Circle has all kinds Every of problems. Bad in the circle. <laughs> uh, but. Um, yeah. All right, well, we're digressing. So <laughs> let's just wrap up this discussion, but we'll be back after the break to talk about the connections between Close Up and the writer. Too tight on you, man. Just gotta let you trust me. Gotta quit trying to force you. Just trust me, bro. Don't Stay with me. I hope for you. I hope for you. I know you're turning away from your buddies, and I know you don't want to do that. Just wide, Cooper's. Boy. What I'm teaching right now is pressure. There's a good boy. Yeah, oh, no. All right. um, cool Keep going. One, two, three. <laughs> yep. See that? It comes off like that. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. 
We can start with performances, which, which we're all like, kind of talking about before. I mean, it's a different situation up to a point, but you, you do have the uh, Satyan and the Ahanka family having to reenact what has to be some fairly painful and shameful things that they've done uh, on camera. So how, how does those two elements compare between these two films? Well, I think not all of Close Up, but like most of the sort of reenacting we see in Close Up is sort of through the framework of an interview or, you know, like, like they're being directly questioned and responding, which is different from the style of performance we're seeing in The Rider, where it's just completely whole cloth within the movie itself. Like mm-hmm. the performances in Close Up are a little more reactive, and Kiristami is very present in the film, and you feel him drawing out those performances, like through the questions we either hear him ask or don't hear him ask, but you, you know, you definitely feel the manipulation a little bit more in terms of how the performances are coming about than you do in the rider which just feels so much more naturalistic by design like both of those are by design i think yeah i mean the rider i think um defines itself as a fiction film Mm -hmm. as more than close-up which kind of straddles the line a little bit more and and uh, it defines itself at all no it (laughs) it doesn't it doesn't but i mean but i think i think you're kind of what chloe Zhao is asking of her performers in the writer is just is so much more, at least in terms of convincing us as characters, than what are essentially reenactments that are being staged by Kiarostami, where it's okay if they're a little stilted, or it's okay if the scenes are a little unnatural because we know them to be recreations. It's fine. Even the scenes in close up that aren't recreations like the trial like there's a formality to them like it's a trial there's a question and answer happening you know i mean those moments especially of sabzian like feel incredibly genuine because they are genuine you know mm-hmm. um it's not a performance or, or it is a performance but it's not necessarily a performance for a, a movie yeah, we're all performers you know <laughs> we're all constantly performing <laughs> Well, I wonder, like, too, in terms of, if you're talking about, like, analogous moments in terms of where the people on screen are maybe not conscious of themselves as performing. I mean, that, you know, see, you know, Sabzian answering questions in a courtroom. He's answering questions in a courtroom when we're seeing that happen. If you think of an analogous moment in The Rider, it would be Brady training the horses. And, and mm-hmm. or, you know, and that's something oh, that totally. you're just kind of observing him doing. And this is something he's, there's nothing faked about it. It's just he is doing his work with these animals. And, um, and the that's, occasional that's interjection. From the other guy, like, like <laughs> that, just like a part of that sequence I really like is like the, I guess the horse's owner over in the mm-hmm. corner, be like, "Wow, yeah, you really got him, yeah." <laughs> like just like little Look occasional noises of, of him being impressed. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, we didn't even talk about Gus. This is horse the oh god, oh, so, I can't, I can't so, a lot of it. sadness, a lot of horse yeah. sadness, and uh, good, good horse performances. <laughs> yeah. The, we didn't talk also about how the, the economy seems to be some combination of cash and marijuana and yeah <laughs> it's a very off the books kind whatever of, kind you can, of, uh, can make ends meet. well and but that's another theme that these two films have in common too is money and social mm-hmm. class yeah. and lack, lack thereof i mean we see in the writer that brady's father is having a lot of trouble making rent and one and one of the big reasons he's having trouble is that, he, that he's got these vices you know he's, mm-hmm. he gambles and he drinks, drinks and and uh he's not Places being responsible yeah. Yeah. um and, and in, a, in a way you almost think that brady has sort of taken over his mother's role in a certain way i mean that he's that he's but brady is not without vices either no, no. You, you know i mean they're 
you know, you could say he gambles in doing rodeo, you know, yeah. like, but obviously with much higher stakes. But, you know, he also, as you said, smokes a lot of marijuana, though that is certainly presented in the context of self-medicating, mm-hmm. you know, the same way as his dad with drinking, presumably, you know. And uh, so there's certainly some echoes between father and son going on there as well. Yeah, for sure. And then, and then if we, then you look at the, the close-up side. I mean, that the, the class differences between Sabzian and the and this family whose lives he's invaded. I mean, that that's a central point of the film. Well, and, and it's also sort of the basis of his admiration for Bakhmabov is the fact that he created characters that Sabzian saw himself in and, and saw his situation in, you know, and presented them with compassion. And that meant so much to him coming from the class status that he does and not seeing that reflected. And for Sabzian and for Brady, they both have these means of escape from their economic hardships mm-hmm. and other hardships. I mean, Brady has, or at least had, the rodeo and uh, that whole scene, something to look forward to, something where he feels truly transcendent and in control mm-hmm. and special. And Sabzian really wants that for himself, and, and he achieves it through this very odd con of presenting himself as Mosen Makhmobov. Would you say they are both craving a sense of identity? They are. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be another connection we were going to talk about. Yeah, and it's all tied together, class class and money and identity too. But the other thing that's kind of like less pronounced, but the Ahanka family is kind of uh, in all of Bakhmabob, who would presumably have, have more money in status than they do too. So there's sort of a, a three levels of, of, uh, of there. And it all tied up to different, different identities. But, you know, I don't know enough to get into it in any detail, but the Ahanka, it's, it's there for, of Turkish descent. At one point, they, they speak Turkish, and then it says, please hmm. speak in, in Persian. I don't necessarily, I know there's are quite a few, you know, Turkish people in Iran, but I don't know how that fits into the larger society, you know, as a whole. And I couldn't speak to it with any sort of authority, but it's, that's, a, that's another thing we could talk about, too. But we touched on Jandro's Lakota heritage and his character, Blackburn's uh, Lakota Heritage, which is, again, kind of understated, but you know, it's always kind of in the background of the film as well. The fact that he's been named Blackburn instead of Jandrow, I mean, it is, uh, the, the name is more evocative of sure. a Native American. If you aren't looking for it, I think it's it's possible to watch this film and not realize they're on a reservation. Right. That's true. You know, I mean, it's obvious that some of the characters are Native American. Brady, not immediately obvious, you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so as with class, like their cultural identity in the writer feels like, I don't want to say backgrounded, but it's just a part of the fabric of the film. It's not like addressed directly sure. ever. Like it's very obvious these characters don't have a lot of money and there like are some moments, you know, where they're in dire straits, but it's not the point of the movie that they that they don't have money, you know? You're right. You're right. It's the movie is not... An, it's irrelevant it, to Brady's it, journey. Right, right. It, it's, it's, it's relevant not... to the extent that like he needs to pawn his saddle or, or something, you know, but it's not like... Oh, that's another he, great scene. Yeah. yeah. A, lot of, a lot of cowboys come in here pawning their saddles. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to jump ahead to another thing, we have a list of topics here, but the use of location in both these films, I think it's kind of an accident or incidental rather, but it kind of upends our probable expectations about what Iran is like or what life on a reservation is like just by dropping the camera in there and watching, mm-hmm. you know, letting us see that. And that's, I think that's part of the beauty of both these films. And in movies generally. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because we might make assumptions about both of these places because we don't see them. We might make assumptions about how people live their lives in, in Tehran and we might make assumptions about how people live on a, on a reservation but not know what we're talking about at all. It's yeah. just, it's all, it all, all comes from some very thin... It's almost as if movies are a machine built for empathy. Right. <laughs> to quote, quote Roger <laughs> it is. They, they are. And I, I 
always grateful for the moments in the writer that are not really driven by plot, but are just about giving you some piece of Brady's life, like that wonderful with his buddies out Around by the, a bonfire. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what a what a setting anyway. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. such a, you just be in that landscape all day, and it's it's a widescreen film. And she shot it. You know, two, three, five to one. So it's if you could really, if you can try to see the rider on the big screen, I highly, highly recommend it. But a scene like that, when they're just shooting the s hit around <laughs> around a, around a, around a fire and drinking beer and playing guitar and what else do you do for entertainment in that area but that you know yeah, if you well, want. well also that scene sort of bleeds into i mean i guess it's technically the same scene but it sort of changes halfway through into these close-ups or, or mid shots of, of his individual buddies sort of talking and it does have the feeling of a little bit of a documentary talking head you know like there's sort of monologuing to the camera about rodeo life or cowboy life or you know like they're sort of in the context of a film that straddles the line between fact and fiction like it's very easy for me to read that as a documentary talking head like visual reference point but just beautifully shot obviously and I mean, that's obviously speaks to another major connection between these two films, which is sort of straddling that narrative documentary divide. And mm-hmm. that that moment in the writer very much like foregrounded that tension between narrative and documentary. And as did the moments in the writer of them watching YouTube videos, which <laughs> they're watching YouTube videos of themselves. Like those are actual YouTube sure. videos of them, you know, of the real characters. So it does sort of have these moments where it sort of makes you aware of what it's doing in the same way that close-up does in, in sort of blurring these two things. If you think about a movie like close-up, such a liberating moment for film to have something like that occur where it's like where all of these traditional rules that you associate with documentaries and how a documentary is supposed to behave and where the lines are supposed to be drawn in fiction films and what you assume assume a fiction film to be and where those lines are drawn when you can kind of obliterate those lines or really just acknowledge that the line between them was always blurry to begin mm-hmm. with that all fiction films have documentary elements to them and that all documentary films have some fiction elements to them if you can just acknowledge that truth then you can start mixing the two up in productive ways and not only can you do it in productive ways you can get the audience to start thinking about the way that those elements interact with each other. It's an exciting adventure to you know for Kiarostami to be able to kind of reveal to us, hey, this is how this is how I'm actually doing this. These are some this is how cinema is intervening in this real situation. And that makes it it makes it incredibly thought provoking and, and uh, unique. Yeah, it's close up just such a weird little miracle of a movie. It's like, you know, it's it is throwing all the rules out the window and in the most casual way possible. And and, and uh, influence is a weird thing and but, but there's I think the butterfly effect of close up brings us directly to something like the writer where the blurring is, is part of the you know, it's part of the technique. It's 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 uh you know, beginning of impressionism. It's like, why don't we just do this instead? And that's uh and here we are. Yeah, well and it's just it's so much more polished and buffed to a, a sheen in the in the writer. And that's kind of what I was fumbling toward talking about in, in the first segment with the Oh it's very graceful. It was, yeah, it was no fun. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about the writer, which is very, very <laughs> graceful about the tricks it is pulling or the, the sort of experimentation it is doing. Like it all feels very graceful and thought out and polished. And close up is just a lot more, you know, like you said, weird. Like it, it, it's a little more sort of performative about what it's doing in the, a way that the writer, which if you don't know its background, plays like a straight narrative film. Yeah, I guess one other point I would like to make with respect to the writer is how many 
exciting films we've seen recently that have opened themselves up in a meaningful way to the outside world. I mean, you think about both of Sean Baker's recent films, uh, The Florida mm-hmm. Project and Tangerine, and, mm-hmm. and, and how, how much the backdrop of those films and his use of non-professional actors yeah. brought authenticity to the occasion you think about you know the, the boyhood which we mentioned earlier and that experiment in in uh melding fiction and, and non-fiction and um i just think this is a very productive and an area for cinema to go and, and it's nothing i think that we've seen until the last however many few decades um this was not an area that films seem to explore all that often i guess that line between the two things so it's exciting to uh, see it happen now it's an exciting place to be and uh with that we can wind things down close-up is currently available on blu-ray from criterion it's also available on various streaming services including our beloved filmstruck and you know, it's there alongside with some bunch of other kiarostami films and some pretty terrific special features including that commentary we referenced a couple of times the writer is currently in select theaters and will be expanding slowly uh, and we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, well, this movie has been out for a while, and people who want to see it have probably seen it, but maybe there are some people who are maybe a little put off by how it presents itself, so I would like to talk about Blockers, a new comedy, new-ish comedy directed by Kay Cannon, uh, probably best known for writing the Pitch Perfect films. Uh, it follows two comedic groupings, one a trio of best girlfriends attending senior prom who make a pact to lose their virginity that night, uh, and the other their parents who, after discovering their pact, take it upon themselves to stop it from happening, with varying degrees of gusto among them. The parents in that group are played by Leslie Mann, John Cena, and Ike Barinholtz, the latter of whom I'd argue is the standout of this movie, at least among the adults. The three girls are played by Catherine Newton, whom you may recognize from Big Little Lies or Lady Bird, Gideon Adlon, and Geraldine Viswanathan, and they're really what I think really makes this film work. Don't get me wrong, the parental comedy is strong enough, though there are a couple of scenes that, in my opinion, skew too far to the crude end of the crude humor spectrum. Uh, But of course, your mileage will probably vary there. But what I like about this film is how it takes that vein of crude, slapsticky adult humor Uh, Judd Apatow gets referenced a lot with this movie, but I think it's closer to the work of Nick Stoller. And it blends that humor with a sort of teen girl coming of age narrative that takes seriously the desires and fears of its teenage characters, while simultaneously giving them comedic opportunities of their own. Uh, Viswanathan in particular is a standout among the girls. She's great. Uh, They're not just characters in their parents' story. Uh, Each set of characters sort of informs and drives the narrative of the other set. Uh, And contrary to what the title and premise may suggest, uh, ultimately brings a sex pack device to a pretty smart sex positive conclusion. Uh, We actually talked about pairing this film with American Pie on the podcast, but none of us could stomach calling American Pie a classic film. (laughs) Um, And and either way, I feel confident in saying that Blockers is leagues ahead of that film in terms of both its comedy and its story. So like I said, if you were like kind of put off by the, the trailers or the premise or the title of Blockers, maybe give it a chance, especially if you, like me, have a soft spot for teen girls stories. I liked it a lot. Blockers. Did Have either of you gotten a chance to see it no, yet? No, I want to. I, I've been... I've, I've wanted to see it since I heard it was a lot better than it looks. Yeah, I, want to, I wanted to make it my game night. A game night I caught up with like a oh, month yeah, after everybody said it, was, said it was good. And I loved it. It was so much fun. So uh, I'm always up for a good laugh. And yeah. uh, and I'm always up to leave my home on a weeknight and see movies like a crazy person. So uh, I should definitely check out 
uh, blockers. All right. Well, Scott, what about, what about you? What's been good for you? I would like to recommend a film called The Endless, which is from uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Scott Moorhead. These two guys are massively talented DIY genre filmmakers. They started their careers with a meta horror film called Resolution which plays a part in the endless so it's part of the resolution verse uh, and then they did and then they did this this combination sort of romance and body horror film called spring that oh. that was their follow up uh which i quite liked and and again just the effects on a, like a nothing budget in the European location. Really beautifully done. Was that sort of like vampire or... It was like a, kind of a monster movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I really like Spring. No, they're really good. Well, the, the Endless is just... The Endless is kind of like a, a fascinating, crazy indie companion to Annihilation. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead actually star in the film as uh, brothers who used to be part of this UFO death cult. And that was like, that was what they Sold. knew. <laughs> well, that's what they knew was their family. And uh, the uh, Justin, you know, excuse me, the Aaron character convinces his brother to go back, to go back into the, and, and, and hang out with this family again, or what he considered his family in this cult. Uh, because, you know, they used to, they had better food than he was eating. They, you know, they'd be outside of the cult. All they're doing is cleaning houses and they're living miserably. And, and uh, they actually had a kind of a sense of purpose in this cult. And so they go back. And as they go back, there's this series of unexplainable phenomena involved. I, I can't even explain all the stuff that happens. There's like different dimensions and like multiple moons and it's just it just goes crazy and there's a certain point probably halfway or two thirds into the film where I, I just kind of just let everything go and just <laughs> let the film do what it was going to do because it just gets so complicated and uh and twisty and something that i think is a film almost like primer or coherence where you need to go back and watch it like many times to kind of like unpack all the layers at work here but does mike d'angelo like this one no i'm desperate for him to see it and i have to oh i know i think he listens to this podcast so so mike <laughs> i need you to see the endless and kind of say whether you like it or not because it seems like it seems like the type of film that mike would really go for or not because i can never predict it but it is that type of experience very layered in the th and one of the things that really saves it for me or makes it work even when it's confusing is that it's incredibly funny it's got a, it's just a wonderful sense of humor about itself and about life inside of the you know a ufo death cult it's clever and it's got a lot of really good characterization and i just think these guys are like so talented and, and you think about all of these you know, indie filmmakers who Hollywood have <laughs> thrown all this money at and they're, they've got no skills at all. And here these two guys are making movies that cost virtually nothing and look amazing. And they invest all of this thought and creative energy and into it. I just think they're really special filmmakers that nobody's talking about. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Uh, their film is called The Endless. And I think it's something that's going to surface on streaming and that sort of thing. Uh, even though I do, I, it's a nice looking film, but uh, certainly put it on your list of things to see down the line. Yes, yeah, so Scott, if you've, if you've been wondering like for the last year where your Blu-ray of Spring is, it's because it's, I've been borrowing it from you. I haven't watched it yet, so <laughs> yeah. I, I need to see well, that. Well, I've, so. I've got your disc of Lady Snowblood and that's, probably a bunch of other oh, things yeah, as well. I could watch yeah. any... I, I may take, take that back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's a good one. It's a good one. We talked about pairing it with something at some point. Yeah, I forget, forget what, what the... it was. Yeah. But... Bloody. 
would have uh, to be. Something, have to something be. sorty and bloody. Yeah. Uh, Keith, what about you? Well, you guys always come in with like these really beautifully scripted mini reviews that are well thought out. And I'm usually just like sort of off the cuff. I'm like, oh, watch this. And this week is no exception. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, but I've been bumming around. Fil- I've had a little time on my hands lately, guys. Uh, so I was bumming around Filmstruck lately. And, and I thought, you know, in the back of my mind for like years, I've been thinking there's some Films on, prior to this, the Hulu version of the Criterion Collection, and now on Filmstruck, that it, there's some Truffaut films that have never been on disc that I know of, and I'd like to catch up with them, and I finally have some time on my hands, so I, I watched uh, Two English Girls, which is this really great uh, movie from, I think, 71. It is sort of the B-side to Jules and Jem. It's, it's another adaptation of a novel by the same person who wrote Jules and Jem, and it's kind of like a, and Jules and Jem is actually referenced fairly explicitly in the film. Uh, in ways I don't want to spoil, uh, but it's kind of a gender reversal where uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot, uh, um, Truffaut's longtime leading man, is the center of a love triangle with two English girls versus two men and, and Jules and Jim. Uh, I followed up with another film, which is uh, Mississippi Mermaid, which is a another sort of you know late 60s, early 70s, I think 69, uh, Truffaut film. It's a, a uh, sort of a, a f- film noirish. It's it for... I mean, Truffaut has a deep admiration of Hitchcock as evidenced by writing a book about Hitchcock with <laughs> Hitchcock. And that turned up in a lot of his films. I mean, The Soft Skin is basically a Hitchcock film in which there's no crime. It's just beyond adultery. But it sort of play, plays out in a really interesting way. But but uh, this one is one where you can really see that relationship and really see that admiration. And it's kind of a noirish film in which Catherine Deneuve plays a uh, femme fatale and Jean-Paul Belmondo is the... Uh, man who thinks she is his mail order bride. And the first half is super fascinating because it's set in this place I wasn't even aware of. It's a small island called Réunion, which is a French territory um, off the coast of Madagascar, like a tiny little speck. But it's just like this interesting, such a fascinating, this is it's another example of the blurring between documentary and, and fiction. It's, it's just a place we'd never been before. It's just sort of like a seemingly fascinating mix of African and South Asian and East Asian and European cultures like mingling together on this small place where mingling together in a sort of isolated culture, which, you know, I never would have uh, known about at all if it, were, if it weren't for, for this film. Anyway, what I'm saying is seek out some random Truffaut films. <laughs> He's great. Even the ones that aren't like his top line films uh, are going to be super rewarding. And you mentioned that Mississippi Mermaid had an influence on a certain film. Oh, yeah. It, it, Mississippi Mermaid is also an, another, uh, in a way that I don't want to spoil, but definitely uh, at a certain point you realize, oh, yeah, I think Paul Thomas Anderson might have seen this before he made The Phantom Thread. Yeah. I have no, those are two true foes I have not seen, so uh, they Worth continue it. to me. Sounds like Mississippi Mermaid particularly would no, be... they're both great. They're both great. Okay. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out May 15th and May 17th. Genevieve, what are we discussing? Avengers Infinity War, the 19th film from Marvel Studios, is the massive box office busting culmination of 10 years of interconnected superhero storytelling. But Marvel's initiative to make the Avengers the center of its cinematic universe may have never happened had Marvel Comics not sold off some of its more obviously bankable properties when it was facing bankruptcy back in the 1990s. Before he returned to the Avengers fold last year, Spider-Man had been the property of Sony, while 20th Century Fox bought the rights to the mutant team, the X-Men, ultimately kicking off the modern superhero movie renaissance with 2000's X-Men. We thought about going back to that film for our next pairing, but instead decided its 2003 sequel, X2, would be a more appropriate superhero team matchup. Like Infinity War, it's also a sequel, which allows it to forego origin story table setting and get right to the potentially cataclysmic mission at its center, which leads to an open-ended resolution that feels like a smaller-scale version of Infinity War's daring finale.
In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of close-up, the writer, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? You can find my work at the culture section at Vox.com and on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott. You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vulture, Variety, NPR, and other fine publications. Also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Keith? Oh, that's an interesting question. As, <laughs> as of the time this comes out, I will have uh, um, parted ways with uh, Uprox, where I served as for over two years as editorial director of film and television. It's a perfectly amicable parting, but I am available for work. I don't want to just pr- you know promote every week, but you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at kfips3000, and my email address is there. So uh, I'm I'm available for writing and editing jobs. And you can, <laughs> and you can find our absent co-host Tasha Robinson's work at theverge.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting thenextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake, Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast, and thanks to Scott Tobias for providing recording space in his home base, Sweet Emulsion Studios. <laughs> the Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. I'm a gambling man, man, man. I'm a gambling man, man, man. I'm a gambling man, man, man. I'm a gambling man. I'm a gambling man, man, man. I'm a gambling man, man, man. I'm a gambling man, man, man. I'm a gambling man.